figured it out by now, today is Trinity Sunday. We've prayed about the Trinity. We've sang about the Trinity. Each of our readings touch on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the proverb, I think it's included here in the reading, as theologians and writers about the Christian faith um, saw that God's wisdom, which it says here was at the beginning, they saw Jesus Christ as the embodiment of the wisdom of God. So there's that Trinitarian connection here. And of course, our letter uh, of, of Paul to the Romans, there's a Trinitarian pattern of God's unfolding love and salvation, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And then we have our Gospel reading where Jesus, who's been sent by the Father, talks about how the Father and the Son will send the Holy Spirit to take the truth of God's Word, God the Father's Word, and plant it into the hearts of His disciples by the work of the Holy Spirit. So we have these Trinitarian patterns in Scripture. Um, one of the significant things, though, about the doctrine of the Trinity is that it really tells us the character of God. That God is love. I mean, that God in Himself is love. The doctrine of the Trinity says that there's one God. This one God has uh, one divine nature. So God is one. But at the heart of this one God is a relationship of love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is an eternal relationship. It's been going on forever. And uh, the amazing thing is, is that this one God who exists in three persons in this eternal relationship of love reaches out to us, His creatures, His creation, and invites us into that relationship. And it's not as if God is lonely or ever was lonely. It's not as if God was waiting for us to pick up the phone and call Him or text Him. God is sufficient in Himself in this relationship of love. But it is the nature of this God that we see in Scripture to communicate that love to His creatures, to those who have been made in the image of God. And so that's what God has been doing since creation. He has been communicating His goodness and love to His creation. And the question for us is, how do we receive that? Are we receiving the love of God? Are we allowing ourselves to be pulled into this eternal relationship of love that's been going on forever? Well, in our reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, he spells out how the saving love of God unfolds, how the, trini the, the, the saving love of the triune God unfolds in our life. And so I invite you to turn to that in your bulletin or in your Bible. In the bulletin, it's page 9. And we're just going to go through what the Apostle Paul says here about how God, the triune God, saves us and how He invites us into this relationship of love. And he starts with what's called justification by faith. You see that in verse 1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now what he's going to do is he's going to talk about the blessings that flow from justification. There are three things I want to talk about here, but let's back up and talk about justification by faith. What does that mean? 
This is a central teaching of Paul the Apostle. This is a teaching that really changed the course of Christianity many different times. Uh, it renewed the Christian faith. This teaching that Paul's talking about here. And it's called justification by faith. And what it means is that God justifies us. God counts us righteous. God accepts us, not by what we do, but what we believe, by faith, who we trust in. And Paul has been talking in Romans 1-4 through that it's in Jesus Christ that God's promise has come. It's in Jesus Christ that God's salvation has come. So it's not that we're justified by faith in anything. It's we're justified by faith in the Son of Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus and what He has done, Paul says we are accepted by God then and there. Now that's very significant because a lot of people don't think that this is the way we get right with God. If they believe in God, most people think of it this way. Uh, that my good deeds have to outweigh my bad deeds. And I'm pretty good. A lot of people think, or some people understand that they're not pretty good and then they're in despair. Some people think they're pretty good compared to their neighbor. Some people think they're not so good. And, um, but, but the common view is this is how I am made right in the eyes of God. My good deeds have to outweigh my bad deeds. Now, last week, if you were here, we had a missionary to the Muslims, Matt Walter. Uh, he lived in the Middle East for many years. He's now here in the United States. He speaks Arabic. He knows the Quran. He interacts with Muslims on a, on a daily basis. And he says this is one of their major problems spiritually. Is they don't know that they're accepted by God. Because in their viewpoint, the way you know you're accepted by God is, is, is that actually you don't know. You, you kind of hope that at the end of time or when you die, you stand before God and the scale is brought out. And your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds or God will not accept you. And he said that most Muslims live with this fear because they don't know that if, if they've been accepted by God. They try to do the good works outlined for them in their religion, but they just don't have that assurance. And I have found as a pastor that most people uh, think that way as well. That this is how, if there is a God, this is how God's going to accept me. My good deeds have to outweigh my bad deeds. And people inside the church and outside the church think that. But what Paul the Apostle says here is, no, there is no scale. There's no scale. There's a cross. There's a cross where Jesus, the Son of God, died to take on our sin. And there's an empty tomb where Jesus, the Son of God, was laid and then God raised him from the dead on the third day. And if you put your trust in Jesus, his death on the cross and the empty tomb, then you can be assured that your sins are forgiven and that you have the hope of everlasting life. And so when you're united to Christ by faith, when you grab on to Christ, you're grabbing on to God and his eternal life. And you can know that you're right with God. So that's the case that Paul has been making in Romans 1 through 4. And he says one result of that, of knowing that you're right with God because you've claimed Jesus, you've hanging on to Jesus, you're united to Jesus, 
one of the results of that is peace. Do you know that you have peace with God? He says, if we've been justified by faith, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what he's talking about here is not an inner peace so much as, I mean, that's part of it, that we can have an inner peace at times with God and in the presence of God. But that sometimes comes and goes. So if we're hanging our hat on our feelings of peace, then, then our assurance kind of can waver and come and go. Am I right with God? I don't know. I don't feel His peace. I don't know where He's at. But he's not talking about that kind of subjective peace so much as he's talking about when war is over and a peace treaty has been signed and the hostility has ceased. That's the kind of peace he's saying. The war is over. The conflict is done for those who are justified by faith with God. Because what Paul says, now you'll not ever hear this on TV or on YouTube or on any podcast that's popular in our culture today. But how Paul describes the relationship between God and people in Romans 1 through 4 is it's really a relationship of conflict. It's a relationship of war. People do not want to live under the authority of God. And, and so what we do is we rebel against God. And we rebel against His authority. Now, our popular spirituality says something completely different, doesn't it? Our popular spirituality... And then this is how you get on you know, The View or The Today Show with a book that says this. Um, there is no conflict between you and God. God is within. So just look within yourself. And uh, you can find that inner peace as you look within. There's no conflict. God is happy with you no matter what you're doing. It's okay. So there's no division. And so basically, in our popular spirituality, we say that the self is God. Doesn't that make the self into God? There's no division between you and God and you can do whatever you want. It's no big deal. That makes the self into an idol. But what Paul says in Romans 1-4, through and you really need to study this if this is kind of a different way of thinking about God and humanity, Romans 1-4, through 4, is that, no, that's the exact problem that we're in as a society, as a culture, as a world. We've rejected the idea of God. We've rejected that there is a Creator and we're His creation. That we're creator, or that we're creatures. And we've rejected the idea that there is a right way to live. A way that's according to the good and the true and the beautiful. And we rejected the idea that God is a judge. And so we are all doing our own things. And that's why there's chaos. And that's why there's breakdown. And that's why there's division. And that's why families fall apart. And that's why individuals are enslaved and addicted. And we're all part of this problem, Paul says. Humanity is, part of, is the problem. Our rebellion, our rejection against God. And, and Paul says we're all part of this. Uh, he admits that he's a sinner. All of us have sinned, the religious people and the non-religious people, and fallen short of the glory of God. So I told you that doesn't play well, does it? That's not really comforting to hear. It grates on us. But Paul says this is the truth. Look at the world today. Look at the condition it's in. Humanity can't save itself. I mean, you're not going to hear that on the campaign trail this summer. That our hope is not in people, ultimately. We can do some good, but our ultimate hope is in God. 
But you know what? God loves His creation and God loves us so much that even though we rebel against Him and, and I've been there and you've been there and some of you are there right now rebelling against God, fighting against God, God loves us still. And He sends His Son into the midst of this conflict to establish peace. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we can know that we're at peace with God. The hostility has ceased. We're no longer rebels. We're friends. We're no longer lawbreakers under God's judgment. We are sons and daughters of God by His grace and mercy. And so that is the promise and that is the blessing of being justified by God with faith. That's one of the blessings and that is peace with God. There's another blessing he talks about here and that is hope. Through Him we've also obtained access by faith, verse 2, into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But this is what I really want to key in on, verse 3, because this is shocking and surprising and will make you scratch your head. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Wow. Rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I can tell you right now, I'm not there yet. I want to be there, but I'm not there. I'm the kind of guy when I go into the dentist and I sit down in the chair, they say, sir, are you okay? You know, I start to almost hyperventilate. Do you need some oxygen? Do you need a little something to take the edge off? <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Katz is back there, the dentist. <laughs> but that's the reality. I don't do well with suffering, physical suffering. I'm not there yet. But you know, uh, Paul the Apostle went through a lot of suffering in his life. And he discovered how suffering can have meaning. And that's one of the ways, as human beings, we, um, we, we have to wrestle with the fact of suffering and we have to come to a place where we understand how suffering can have meaning or life itself doesn't make a lot of sense. Because... Eventually, we all suffer. So you have to try to make some sense of the suffering. Now, there's a guy named Viktor Frankl who was a um, psychologist and he was in the concentration camps in World War II as a Jew. And of course, he went through a great deal of suffering and saw a lot of suffering. And he said that in the concentration camps, his fellow prisoners asked this question. The main question they wanted to know is, am I going to survive? Because if I don't survive, then this suffering doesn't have any meaning. And Viktor Frankl said, no, that was the wrong question. His question was different. His question was, does the suffering that I'm experiencing now in the concentration camp mean anything? Because if it doesn't have meaning, then there's no meaning to survival. Because I know after I get out of the concentration camp, I'm going to suffer yet again. Not in the horrendous way that I'm suffering now. But the point that Viktor Frankl was making is suffering is part of life. So life has to be more than just survival for it to make sense. You have to make me uh, you have to find some meaning in your suffering. And the Apostle Paul did that. And the Christian faith provides that here. And he says here that we can find joy in our suffering. How is that? It's not because we're happy about suffering but it's because of the things that follow. You see what he's saying here? If we are going through suffering with God, knowing that we're in right relationship with God, 
and that all things are going to work together in the end for our good because we're in right fellowship with God, then what suffering can do is provide endurance and endurance can strengthen our character. And as we go through this suffering with God, we know that God is working in us and on us. That produces hope because we're not going through the suffering alone. Now, again, I want to get there someday. I don't think I am there, but I have seen Christians go through suffering in this exact way. I mean, I've seen older and wiser saints go through suffering, and as a result of the suffering, it has made them more humble. It has made them more empathetic, more compassionate, softer towards people. There, there is a, I've seen a, a, a noble perseverance by some Christians who are suffering greatly and they just keep on the path. And it's noble. And, 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 and as they're going through it, their hope is refined and they set their sights on eternal hope. God is working in them and their sights, that produces hope and yet they have a sense of what really is their ultimate hope and the things that really matter. That can happen as we go through suffering with God. And if when we're in a right relationship with God, that's exactly what God wants to do in us. So we have peace that flows from justification. We have hope. And then verse 5, briefly, and this hope does not disappoint us. This hope does not put us to shame. Because there's a present reality that we experience that is God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the work of the Holy Spirit makes this love come alive in our hearts and in our minds. The Christian faith is not just an intellectual faith. The Christian faith is an experiential faith as well. And we can experience the love of God in our hearts. Um, I just love that image of it's kind of like the liquid love of God going into the center of your very being. And when that happens, it changes you and you have hope and you have peace. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want to say uh, to you this morning is, can you what Paul is doing here is really is he's thanking God for this, all these blessings. He's, he's saying, will you join me? In thanking this triune God who's poured out these blessings, you see the Trinitarian pattern? The, the, the Father sends the Son. The Son justifies us. The Holy Spirit pours the, 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 the love and the grace of God into our hearts. And what Paul is saying is, can you appreciate these blessings? Will you join in this course of praise and thanksgiving for all that God has done in your life? Sometimes as a church, well, a couple years ago, um, we used to we used to do this a couple of years ago. We'd go out Christmas caroling, and I thought about this image of Christmas caroling in public. We go to Schnooks and Deerbergs, and one of the best things about that is sometimes as people are walking by and everybody's busy, but you know you hear these these carols that speak of God's salvation and hope, and there would be some people who would stop, and you know it's resonating with them, or you know that they want what you're singing about. And then once in a while, we'd have a choir member. I'm not going to point out which one back here. 
But she would she was bold and she would those people that would stop and they'd start singing along, she'd say, Come and join us. Come and be part of the praise. Join in the song of salvation. That's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, Will you come? Will you join us? Will you rejoice in what God has done? Can we together as a congregation give thanks to God for His blessings that He's poured out upon us? Because we're right with Him through Jesus Christ. Have you experienced these blessings? It can be yours as you turn to Christ in faith. Let's pray.